Welcome to Ridgewood Talks. Through this podcast, we will be introducing you to some of the leaders and legends in our village. We'll keep you updated about fascinating local events, and we'll dig into the town's hot topics and so much more. But first, let me introduce myself. I'm Jeannie Johnson, the founder of Ridgewood Talks and Ridgewood Walks. The goal of these initiatives is to create a kinder, more connected, and more vibrant community. I'm thrilled to be co-hosting this podcast with my good friend and all-around wonderful guy, Jordan Kaufman. We look forward to meeting with you weekly and hearing your thoughts on who and what you'd like to learn about in our beautiful hometown. Enjoy this episode. Hi, everybody. Thanks again for tuning in to another episode of Ridgewood Talks. Today, we have an incredible guest with us. His name is Dylan Carroll. He is a Ridgewood Public School alumni. He graduated from from Cornell University, and now he is doing humanitarian work from Kyiv, Ukraine. He is 24 years old and has managed to raise over $500,000 for uh, medical efforts for those that are affected by the war in the Ukraine. And so we just... I'm so proud of you, Dylan. Thanks so much for all that you're doing. So I'm going to just turn it over to Jordan real quick. We'll take it from there. Go ahead, Jordan. Thank you, Jeannie. And Dylan, thanks so much for being here with us. Just so everyone knows, Dylan is streaming in live from Kiev. You know, we're, we're hoping that the power stays on and everything else has already been uh, one or two interruptions just as we've been catching up. But it's really just incredible. It, it really is an honor to have him uh, streaming in from halfway across the world. So Dylan, thank you for being here. And I also want to start before we jump in. Um, I know that we're going to be getting into a lot and it's great to hear Dylan say it, but if you want to check out his website, I just want to give it to you front and center. It's missionto.org. And you can go there and learn a, a lot more as as you listen along, if you're just starting to listen or after the podcast, if you want to check it out, we really encourage you. You can find ways to click links to uh, support what Dylan's doing. Um, anyway, with that, Dylan, I really would love to hear a little bit. You, 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 we were talking a little bit before we started recording, and you had an incredible way of just talking about how you got involved in this. After you said it, I kind of jokingly said, can you say it all over again right when we start? I meant it. Can you say it all over again now that we're uh, we're live and up and running? Of course, Jordan. Uh, happy to. And thank you both for having me. It's wonderful you know, to speak to the Ridgewood community that I got to grow up in and to share a little bit more about what I've been doing currently in my life. And so really happy to be here. So uh, rewind to February 24th of this year. I was with my best friend and freshman year roommate from Cornell, Mark Krinovich, who has become my best friend and practical twin brother, given that we have the same birthday. Um, And we saw the war unfold on the 24th and instantly were shocked and scared for Mark's family. As Mark is Ukrainian and was born in Kharkiv, Ukraine, on the same day that I was in Connecticut, 
which was the 25th of February, the day after that the war started. And so our birthday became a call to action for both of us as we were thinking about Mark's family and the devastation that we were seeing on the news. And so I went in to check in with Mark at his apartment in New York City, and we talked about how we were feeling and how we both felt this sense that we wanted to be doing more. And suddenly, I don't know what came over me, but I said, why don't we go there? And Mark looked at me and smirked and chuckled a bit saying, what do you mean? Go to a war zone? And I said, yeah. And we both had a pretty serious conversation for the next hour. But afterwards, we both felt that it was right to go for a week and to just try and do whatever we could to have an understanding of what was happening on the ground and also to see how we could help using our own resources and knowledge and try to make an impact. So on that same day, we purchased tickets at around noon for an 11.30 p.m. departure from JFK to Vienna. And we called our parents and told them where we were going. And we just packed our bags and off we went. And our original intention was to just go for a week and to raise $5,000. And Mark and I were so astounded and humbled that within the first week, I think we had raised a little over twenty or thirty thousand dollars from friends, family, and those that they shared with on social media platforms and elsewhere. And so one week turned to two. And after two weeks and about four thousand miles of driving throughout Poland and Slovakia. Uh, in Austria and getting to meet with dozens of organizations and seeing the refugee crisis on the border. We both took some time, about a week, to think about whether or not we wanted to move forward, about whether we wanted to pursue this further. And both Mark and myself had never felt the sense of fulfillment as well as just utter gratitude from others and getting to help people as on a full-time basis. And so we both decided that we would commit ourselves for as long as we could to helping Ukrainians in all the various ways that we were learning about during our experience. And so at the end of March, Mark and I moved to Poland full-time and started to assess a better understanding of what were the needs inside of Ukraine using Mark's contacts from his friends and family having been born there. And we have spent the last nine months in Ukraine and Eastern Europe procuring medical supplies and devices for mobile clinics, for hospitals, uh, helping with reconstruction efforts for the winter, which has been uh, increasingly difficult for many Ukrainians uh, in the places where they find themselves now. And it's been the most life-changing and humbling experience that either Mark or myself have encountered. And getting to work on the behalf of others and you know translate people's generous financial support into actionable items where we can show them photos and videos of the people that they help and the difference that they are making on the ground has been astounding and fills both of us with pride. And it's largely what fuels us to continue doing this work today. Well, like I said, um, we're so proud of you. Um, We definitely want to do our part to help you out so you can continue this work. 
Um, some of the things that were interesting to me, I, I can't even remember how many times we've had to reschedule this interview with you. I know one time we were scheduled to have an interview and you sent me a photo of yourself stuck in traffic in the snow. Another time, I think there was a flight delay of some kind. So I would imagine there are a lot of things that sort of impede your ideas of how to accomplish the things that you want to do. So tell us a little bit about what it's like to be literal boots on the ground there. Yeah, of course. It's been, it's become increasingly difficult, especially with the situation regarding the energy sector in Ukraine. Over the past two months, Russia has effectively destroyed or damaged over 40% of Ukraine's energy infrastructure, which has led to both timed as well as unexpected uh, electricity blackouts throughout many regions of Ukraine, especially the major cities like Kiev, where I am now. And so currently, before I even opt on to this call, uh, there's issues with our electricity at the moment. So I'm working off of a mobile hotspot uh, in order to connect and speak with you all. And it has become difficult at times, especially since in Ridgewood, when we think of winter, we start to think of snow falling around this time in December, and it starts to thaw towards the end of March. But in Ukraine, winter is really from November 1st until the end of April. And snow has been falling in Kiev and much of Ukraine for the past month and a half now. Even two days ago, I think we got about four or five inches of snow. And so there are different environmental as well as situational factors that have arisen as the war has changed and progressed over these past nine months. And as internet can certainly be an issue, traffic, when the electricity goes out, you, don't, you, you no longer have traffic lights. And so four-way stops quickly become uh, very, uh, you know, congested and difficult to navigate. A, a drive that could take 10 minutes can now take 30 or 40. So there are certainly a lot of factors that have been impacting our work in that sense. But we've been fortunate to figure out some workarounds using cellular networks and uh, making some expensive phone calls here and there. Uh, when we need to be a landline, but it, it's a it's a process of adaptation and overcoming, which is largely what anyone does in their own life or profession. But it's a little bit different, obviously, when you're working through a war zone and having unexpected delays or changes that are thrown into your schedule. I would say so. It sounds like a real challenge. And so tell us too about the level of fear that you experience on the daily basis. What do things look like on the ground over there? You know, in terms of a sense of fear, I think when looking at Western news media and seeing the devastation, it's inherently terrifying because it's impossible to comprehend for any person um, that has, you know, a heart that feels for the mothers and children and fathers who are losing people and loved ones. I think over time, Mark and I have certainly acclimated to the situation here on the ground. There are air raid sirens 
just about every day or every other day. And despite those and what you might think living in Ridgewood, and if you heard that suddenly, you would probably be terrified and not know what to do or get under your table. Because it's been going on for so long, it has become more or less a part of life in the sense that ultimately the people that are still there in Ukraine, which is most of the population, they continue to go about their daily lives. They continue to work in their professions, whether they're accountants at PwC or they're plumbers or they work uh, at a local store or a restaurant. People have adapted to the situational factors and knowing that something could happen. But despite that, life needs to go on. You need to be able to keep going out to a dinner and get your coffee in the morning and say hello to your neighbors. And the fear, you could say, is not necessarily there. Rather, fear has turned into resolve. And when you hear something like an air raid siren, or you see that an area in your city has been attacked, you feel this sense that you are a part of something with this city, that you are part of something in this country, that the suffering and the difficulties and the trauma is shared. And it's not just on your shoulders, but it's spread across your neighbor and the people that you see on the street. So while Mark and I don't feel any fear, and we don't sense that there is fear amongst many, if not any of the Ukrainians that we see on the street, it's because, unfortunately, people have had to adapt to the situational factors of this war and the dangerous side that, you know, people can lose their lives and it happens on a daily basis. But um, as of now, Mark and I feel more resolve and tied with the Ukrainian people than fear. Dylan, that's really interesting talking about that because that talking about that connection with the city, which is something we all feel when we live in an area, we feel connected to our neighbors. And you talked about resolve for a second. And that's something that the Western world, when we hear media and news, is we hear about an incredible Ukrainian resolve to, you know, defend their land, defend their right to be independent. And you know, really deciding that they're willing to uh, trade off in the short term some of the, you know, typical luxuries, which we often take for granted uh, in places like Ridgewood or, or, you know, pretty much anywhere in the United States versus what they're experiencing out there. Can you tell us a little bit, because you just mentioned your own resolve and Mark's resolve. Is that being rubbed off from the Ukrainian resolve? Are people like yourself helping them maintain their resolve through your humanitarian efforts and your own philanthropy that you're providing through your volunteerism and helping to raise funds. Can you just talk a little bit about that energy of, of how the people there um, and, and you are, are kind of feeding off each other in, in your resolve? Yeah, of course. It first and foremost comes from the Ukrainian people themselves. The Ukrainian people are the most resilient loving, determined people that I have been blessed to get to know in my own life. And when it comes to this sense of resolve, it is inherently derived from this entire country ability to not only band together in such a short amount of time, but to also outlast what many experts were saying was going to be a two-week wartime skirmish. 
which was supposed to end quickly with the taking of Kiev and installing a puppet government. And suddenly Ukraine would be no more and it would be part of the Russian Federation. And so when it comes to the sense of feeling on the ground, more than anything, people like myself and Mark, other humanitarians and philanthropists that are working diligently to support the Ukrainian people, we derive our sense of resolve from them, from ordinary people that you walk across down the street. It's the people that have chosen to adapt part of their lives to helping their neighbor, to helping whomever they can. And we have plenty of stories in which we've met people randomly who then suddenly the next day serve as a important, a crucial factor in getting one of our own uh, humanitarian missions done. One that comes to mind is in early October, or early August rather, Mark and I were delivering uh, medical vests and uh, helmets to medical personnel that were working close to the front line that were providing emergency medical, medical care, oftentimes under live fire. And we were struggling with finding a means through which to carry the materials across the border and towards Lviv, which is in the west of Ukraine. And while we were crossing the night before scrambling to try and find someone, we stopped at a gas station and a man pulls up and he steps out of his car and he's smiling, he's determined, and he's got this walk to him and we say hello he says hello and he can hear me speaking english with my american accent and he comes over and he starts talking to us and learns about what we're doing and he says stay in touch here's my number happy to help with anything let me know he owns a couple of small businesses in lviv and the next day we texted him just in the morning just as an off chance that maybe he knows somebody and it turns out that he had an empty cargo van that and he was willing to take off the next two days to come with us to the border of Poland, pick up the materials which we had purchased and bring them to where we needed to go. And so when I talk about this sense of resolve, when I talk about this sense of deriving this fortitude from the people, it's those types of encounters. It's people that have lives, that have businesses, that have professions that they continue to work through. But on a moment's notice, they're willing and able to turn around and help the rest of their country, to help their community and their neighbors, because they know that there's a bigger thing worth fighting for and that participating and by being a part of this country and this conflict that they have a part to play and that they themselves can make a difference. Um, and so that that is largely where Mark and I and many others draw, draw their resolve. And that's very much the feeling on the ground that's shared amongst many Ukrainian, if not all Ukrainian citizens. That's so beautiful. That's amazing. So tell us um, what a day in the life of Dylan Carroll looks like. Um, I know you said that you are living in Poland and um, right now you're in Kiev. So, you know, what, how often do you make these tracks? Where do you get the supplies? It, it, you know, are there shortages? I keep reading about things. Um, so tell us about that. Yeah. So Mark and I lived in Poland for a couple of months before deciding to actually move into Ukraine. And we decided to move into Ukraine to have a better understanding of what the needs were of 
different parts of the regions throughout Ukraine, as well as to get a sense of that feeling of what is it like here on the ground? What is it situationally like compared to what we're hearing in the news? And a typical day in the life, well, there is unfortunately no typical day. There can be days where Mark and I are largely behind a computer where we are communicating with donors or potential vendors that we're purchasing medical supplies or other critical supplies that are needed for a project that we're working on. And we can be calling people in the United States, in Germany, in the United Kingdom, uh, other organizations in Ukraine. And then there are other days where we are in our car for 10 plus hours, driving hundreds of miles for over two, three days. And we are ourselves carrying supplies out of trucks, loading them into community centers or other vehicles so that they can be brought to those that need those supplies most. And so there is no one typical day and it's changed a lot over the past nine months of our own work, uh, especially as we started to see two, two and a half months into the conflict, aid and financial contributions significantly started to decline. We had to figure out ways ourselves as an organization and wanting to continue our work and support those whom we felt relied on us. We had to figure out means through which to communicate our story and raise funds back home and around the world so that we could translate those into actionable items and aid that were going directly to Ukrainians. Um, and in terms of where we get our supplies from, it has been such an interesting experience being on the ground, especially in the first month or two during the during the war, because more often than not, you would run into maybe 20 people in a day all of whom know somebody who knows somebody, just by following those threads, you not only found that this community of people that were trying to help were more interconnected than you thought, but you oftentimes got connected to just the person you needed within a day or two of you having the thought of, oh, it would be great if we had somebody like this that could fulfill a, the medical order that we're trying to get for the children's hospital in Kiev so that they have these portable ultrasounds. And that is a real example of something that we needed to do once. We were able to get connected to a medical distributor, a medical supply distributor in Poland who happened to have those in stock and was able to sell them to us at a discounted price from the retail price. There are many off uh, you know, just chance encounters like that. And then other times it takes research and looking into where are the best places to purchase specific types of items. There are medications that you can only get through pharmacies and pharmaceutical production facilities. And so reaching out to a dozen, two dozen pharmacies and walking up to them one by one like we did in March, asking, hi, do you have this invoice worth of medications? We'd like to purchase as much as possible through you. Can you help? You'll strike out on about 80, 90% of them, but those 10% that stick, they're able to help fulfill what you need, which is going directly to Ukrainians who have requested these items in a very clear and detailed format. And inherently, as we went through those changes in 
after the first two and a half months of the war, where donations started to slow down, we also had to shift the way in which we were fundraising and the projects we were supporting. So we focused on larger initiatives where we would be able to provide as much aid as possible to the most number of people in a specific city or a region. And so it adapted over time, just as our daily schedules adapt every week. And it's been it's been a very interesting experience getting to learn how to not only network in a wartime environment, but also how to connect those that need help with those that can provide help and expediting that process as best as possible with the resources that we have on hand. It's so impressive. I'm just stunned by what you're telling us. Have you connected with any of the local uh, medical supply or pharmaceutical companies here in New Jersey? We have not connected with any specific in New Jersey. We have connected, however, with some in the Baltimore area where Mark grew up. Uh, Mark Mm -hmm. grew up in right outside of Baltimore, Maryland in a town called Towson. And so we were able to connect with uh, some folks there. But more often than not, it is more effective for organizations working in Ukraine to purchase pharmaceutical and medical supplies in Europe, since more often than not, the supplies are there. But the disconnect is having the finances to go and purchase them as quickly as possible. And as great as it is to perhaps get sent over a box or two via air to uh, Poland and then bringing them across, it's typically not as cost effective as purchasing medications on the ground of which there are ample supply throughout the European Union. Well, that's good news to hear because we hear so much about supply chain issues. So I'm happy to know that you don't have any problems procuring them. I mean, I'm so curious about your personal piece of how you're getting along in your apartment and is it hard for you to find food? I know you're talking about going to grab your morning coffee and making sure that you get out. So those things are really important. But the thing I want to know the most is what can people do to best support you? You mentioned something about your funding depleting right now. Where are you at with that? And what's the best way to support you? Yeah, the best way to support us is either by making a financial contribution or by sharing our work and our story with your own networks. Mark and I see both as equally helpful because we've learned the power of network effects in doing this work inherently. I've described a couple of instances that we've encountered over the past nine months, but you'd be so surprised how one person sharing our story on Facebook or on LinkedIn or on Instagram how it can come across the view of somebody who has a large amount of money to donate or just wants to donate 50 to $100 and contribute to a cause where they see exactly how their financial contribution gets directly translated into tangible aid that helps people with faces and names and places in which they live. And so the, those are the two primary ways of helping us. And we largely encourage people to go to our website, click on the donate now button, and it'll bring you to where we crowdfund our some of our financial donations 
on a site called Spot Fund. And on there, we have posts over the last nine months going into a lot of detail, uh, talking about the projects that we've worked on, the people that we've worked with, the Ukrainians that have been directly helped by the financial contributions and the individuals that are now part of what we like to call our mission to Ukraine community. It really is a community because ultimately all that Mark and I do is we work and we deliver help on behalf of every single supporter that makes a contribution to our cause. This is just Mark and myself working on the behalf of others and helping others. We really are adamant on having people join us in our community and understanding that they can be a part of something so much larger than they may even realize. Because oftentimes when we see such terrible news and destruction and war on our TV screens, it's easy to feel hopeless. It's easy to feel like, what can I do? Is there anything that I can do? There are so many small organizations, and I say small, meaning like Mark and myself, two people, 10 people, 20 people that have raised funds in the realm of a couple tens of thousands of dollars to maybe a million dollars. And there are so many of those organizations that are sharing such powerful stories and showing how financial contributions really translate into helping folks that we encourage those that want to support us to become part of that community. Make one donation, share it with your friends, come back to it a couple months later, make another financial contribution, talk about how does our story, how does what you see Mark and myself doing, how does that make you feel? Does it impact you? Does it make you feel like, oh, I wish I was there? And if it does, tell people. Tell people that you love. Tell people that you know care about the causes that you commit yourself to. Because ultimately, the only way in which this war will be won is by ordinary people helping ordinary people. It's by citizens helping citizens. This entire war in Ukraine, the resolve of the people, as I was describing earlier, it's ultimately determined by people that you would walk by on the street, turning around and doing something to help their neighbor. And by building and focusing on this global community and understanding that your donation and sharing a story can make a direct impact in the life of a mother or a child or someone that is suffering unforgivable costs because of this war, it's really powerful and motivating and giving to others, you know, focusing on that part of ourselves that each and every one of us has in us, which is this idea that giving to others is something that is precious and it fulfills us and it makes us feel connected and like we are doing good in the world. There's nothing better. There's no better feeling. So I greatly encourage anyone that is moved by my story and what I've been describing in terms of the work I've done with my best friend, Mark, to consider doing one of those two things or both of those things, making a financial contribution and sharing our story and what it means to you and why you want others to help. That's beautiful. So you are definitely an inspiration to me and I'm sure to you too, Jordan, and hopefully many of our listeners, sure. I'd like to know who inspires you? Where did you get the heart to serve? Hmm. That is a great question. There are a couple people in my life 
that have inspired me and my desire to serve and help others. I first and foremost think of my mom and dad. They both, from an early age, ingrained in me this understanding that ultimately everything that I had in my life, in the ability to live in Ridgewood, to go to some great schools and to have incredible experiences, ultimately it meant nothing if I used those things solely for myself. And so working with my children. I don't know if you can hear us, Dylan, but we lost you for a minute. Hey, you guys there? Yeah, yeah. we're here. No worries. Sorry about that. <laughs> What's crazy is you'll learn key, my heart like jumps a beat when, when you, I know, you go too. out. I'm like, what was it? <laughs> Please don't worry. I, I am in a safe part of the city. It's just the just the internet, but I appreciate it. So where was I? Um, I was describing my parents and ingraining in me this sense of giving back. My parents joined the community of St. Elizabeth's Episcopal Church in Ridgewood when I was two years old. And I grew up in that community where ultimately from when I was the age of maybe six or seven, I would do community service projects with my church uh, and going to the St. Paul's Men's Shelter in Patterson, New Jersey, doing some mission trips uh, in in New Jersey and some other states. That is what I think gave me my first grounding and understanding the power of giving back to people and the sense of fulfillment and how much one person can make a difference in others' lives. I also credit my mom and dad with enrolling me in the Boy Scouts. I stuck with the Boy Scouts throughout all of high school. I attained uh, the rank of Eagle Scout, which is the highest rank with Troop Ridgewood's Troop 5 when I was in my uh, sophomore year of high school. That too was a huge grounding in this sense that giving to others and serving others is the greatest work and provides you with the greatest sense of reward and fulfillment possible. I did my Eagle Scout project at my elementary school, Travel Elementary, and I reconstructed the inner school courtyard at Travel, which had been neglected for 30 plus years with a 25-foot white pine and other plants overgrowing, and it had served as a, as, a, as a trash dump at some point. And I reconverted it to providing kids with a means of having some educational classes outside, as well as a beautiful space for teachers and staff to go and enjoy during some times off. And I remember working on that project and getting to see the faces of little kids getting to enjoy that space for the first time since that space was constructed in the 60s when Travel was made. And it brought me the utmost sense of joy and fulfillment. It was overwhelming, the sense that I felt. I think, too, a lot about my teachers that I've had throughout my life. It's funny, but I still go back to Travel and BF and to my high school, Montclair Kimberly Academy. And I catch up with my teachers at least once a year because I understand from their perspective how much of the service that they are doing and giving to kids and being teachers and educators. I myself, after graduating from Cornell, was in Teach for America, where I taught AP World History in the Newark, New Jersey school district for a year. And I learned how much 
work goes into being a teacher. And in reflecting how I just came out of college where I was a student at the top of my educational life, and then suddenly getting the rude awakening as to what it's actually like to be a teacher and to serve others inherently, which is the primary purpose of being a teacher. I, I go back to a lot of those folks. I think of Mrs. Burke, my fifth grade teacher at uh, Travell Elementary. I think of Mr. Fiocchi, who I know is retired from BF. I think of, uh, you know, my, my favorite history teacher at MKA, Mr. Hustler, who taught me a lot about the sense of values of committing yourself to multiple paths and always thinking about others. And I have plenty of other inspirations and people that motivate me to work on the behalf of others and to share stories and to make an impact on the lives of other people, not necessarily, not for your own personal benefit, but rather for the benefit of those people. Um, and so it's been interesting in living and breathing this work day in and day out for the past nine months because it, in a way it has come naturally to me. And in other ways, it's been a learning experience, like any new experiences for anyone, whether it be professional or life related. And so I think I, I credit a lot of it to my mom and dad for setting the foundation. And then I greatly thank the people along my own personal, educational, professional journeys that have shown me the way in which you can live a life of fulfillment and live a life in which you are able to enrich not only yourselves, but also those around you and to derive happiness from that. Dylan, I am so blown away by your story. I just think it's like, you know, as we're wrapping up here, I just want to take a quick inventory check on what we've discussed here, just so everyone, you know, because because so much was said. I just want to set the pace a little bit. Dylan is a good-looking, successful Cornell grad who, on his birthday this year, was so moved by what he saw happening in Ukraine that he dropped everything and went over there with his best friend and has since done a, a humanitarian effort where he has helped raise and deliver humanitarian services over $500,000 worth to countless Ukrainians to help them in not only what's a tough war they're going to be going through until hopefully it's resolved as quickly as possible because it's heartbreaking to see, but also a enormous rebuilding effort, which is going to have to happen afterwards as people are moving and becoming refugees and then you know hopefully are able to move back to their homes. And this is just incredible. I'm on the website right now. Uh, you can follow along, whether you're on your phone, go to missionto.org. At the top, if you're on your phone, there's a donate now button on the left or ways to give. You can click either one. They take you to different places. If you're on your uh, desktop, it's on the top right of the screen. And when you click on that, you end up getting taken to this spotfund.com. And on there, there's a ton of pictures, additional information about what's going on. It's also on the on the original website. But the whole thing is just, it's captivating. And it's just unbelievable. And, and for you to also be someone who grew up in Ridgewood, Dillon, and then you see all that you're able to accomplish and how you took this effort and gave back, it, it's just absolutely mind-boggling. And so 
you were so moved to do all you've done. Hopefully, uh, you know, more people can share and move other people to help you in your effort in what you're doing, because it's nothing short of God's work. So thank you so much. And we're so proud of you. And, you know, I'm, I'm eager to get more people to support you so you can continue this work. Uh, finally, my last question to you is when, when will you get to come back home? I will be coming home to Ridgewood between the 23rd of December and the 11th of January. I'm going to be giving a talk, actually a virtual event at the Ridgewood Public Library on the 28th of December at, I think I think it's 6 or 7 p.m. So I encourage anyone that's listening to this and if they'd like to hear more to come to that event. And otherwise, yeah, I'll be able to spend a nice two and a half weeks home um, catching up with my two dogs and my brother and uh, both my parents, which I'm very much looking forward to and so happy to be coming home to Ridgewood and, you know, seeing the the lovely town that in a large part has molded me in, into the young man I am today. And uh, I have so many fond memories and definitely going to hit up Wilkes Deli and uh, Bagelicious and <laughs> some of the some of the creature comforts of home that I've I've missed some 6,000 miles across the Atlantic. I can imagine. Well, I wish you a very, very happy holiday season. And I wish you continued good work. Um, like, I, I can't stop saying it. We're just so proud of you. And we're just so inspired by you. So keep it up, Dylan. Thank you both so much for having me. And it's been such an honor to get to share my story with the Ridgewood community. And I hope that some folks are inspired to help after hearing my story. We hope so too, Dylan. Take good care. Thank you, Dylan. Take care, folks. Talk soon.